What's up, everyone? Welcome to the second episode of The Newsroom. I'm Owen Poindexter, senior writer with Front Office Sports. Today, we are diving into the rise of the youth athlete. So just last month, the baseball minor leagues unionized, and this is after a years-long effort. I spoke to someone, a minor league advocate, maybe five years ago. At that point, he was just trying to hold off the contraction of the minor leagues, and MLB eventually did cut about 40 minor league teams. And at some point, unionization came up in that conversation, and it was just like I was talking about, like, wouldn't it be nice if you won the lottery? It's like, it was just so, like, it just wasn't gonna happen. Uh, it was so far off. And all of a sudden, last month, we get the news that it's happening, that the MLBPA was making that effort, and now all of a sudden, very quickly, the minor leagues have been unionized. They are represented by the Major League Baseball Players Association. And I see this as part of a larger trend of younger athletes, pre-professional athletes, saying, we don't necessarily have to accept the conditions that our predecessors did, and we maybe have more earning power than our predecessors did for any number of factors. And we're gonna be getting into those in just a few moments. 2000, 2008, 2022. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting, so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins, everything you need all in one place. So how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer, NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash the newsroom right now. netsuite.com slash the newsroom. All right, let's get into it. So today we are talking about the rise in power and stature and earning power of the youth athlete, both in college athletics, but also just people who are pre-professional, who are not necessarily in MLB, NBA, the NFL, but are on their way there. And this athlete, if you, you know, just a couple, two, three years ago, the attitude of those leagues and of society in general was, you should just be happy to be here. You know, maybe one day you'll make the millions, the tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right now, this is essentially an unpaid or very low-paid internship, and you should just be happy to have it because people would be, you know, they'd, they'd kill to be in your position. That has radically changed over the last couple years. So we'll be getting into that with our senior reporter, AJ Perez. Nice to see you, AJ. Hey, how's it going? And our reporter, Amanda Krisovich. How's it going, Amanda? Good. Thank you for having me. So the big topic here perhaps is college athletics, but what really prompted this for me is the baseball minor leagues unionizing. This is something that has been talked about among advocates for minor leaguers for many years. And then all of a sudden in August, we get this headline, the MLBPA, the Players Association, is distributing unionization cards, authorization cards to the minor leaguers saying, if you sign this, it means you support joining the union. More than half of them do. Uh, and then MLB, what are they going to do? They said, okay, we we voluntarily accept you as joining the union. We're not going to fight this. It looked like, you know, their their goose was cooked on that front anyway. And also in the middle of that, 
we had the MLBPA joining the AFL-CIO, the largest union in the United States. So a lot to chew on, a lot to unpack there. AJ, how do you feel this shifts the power dynamics for minor leaguers as relates to MLB generally? Yeah, I covered minor league baseball in my second internship, the Cal League, which is high A, uh, class A ball in California. That was like, I covered a Giants affiliate. Um, and you see how these how these players live, and it's it's a pretty Spartan lifestyle. And that's that's high A. We got rookie ball below that. Um, and we've seen contraction. We've seen basically 40, around 40 um, MLB clubs around, uh, my, sorry, minor league baseball clubs around the nation um, shut down over the last couple of years. And uh, MLB taking control of the minor league. So that was, I, I was kind of shocked that um, you know, yeah, President Manfred um, actually accepted the union before the vote was even in. Um, because, uh, so it, it could have been a long drawn out process. You get the NLRB on board, you have to do, a, you know, have to, you know, ver- verify the election and you have to get a certain percentage, but MLB stepping in and saying, yeah, you guys go for it. You know, I think that's a, that's a step in the right direction. And I think they would have, fighting it would have been a bad PR move and it, it, it would have ended up not working anyway. Yeah. When I saw that, I just assumed that they knew they were, this was a losing battle. They don't want a big public thing. They already had a big public thing with the last CBA negotiations. So uh, Amanda, how does all this hit you? How do you see this shifting the power balance? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to see um, what exactly is going to improve um, for the lives of minor league baseball players. I'm curious to see, you know, because just because you have a union doesn't mean that you get everything that you ask for. Of course, you never really do. Right. Um, What's that saying about like the sign of a good compromise is both parties walk away unhappy. Um, So, you know, I I I definitely think that having the um, the power of sort of their major league counterparts on board will will hopefully really move the needle, even even just in the media, because, you know, for the first time really ever recently, major league baseball players have been speaking out, um, you know, to support their minor league, minor league counterparts to sort of talk about how horrible the conditions that a lot of them are living in are. Um, so, you know, maybe it's, it's sort of like, it, it's the same in college too. It's like, is it going, is... There's the courts, right? There's the arbitration. There's the legal aspect of it that could that could sort of um, be a path per, for change. But there's also the court of public opinion, which um, you know, just having the platform of a union, you know, I wonder if that will move the needle too. Yeah, and I feel like the court of public opinion is pretty key in all of this. I feel like that shift has happened over the last. I don't know, 10 years, especially through social media and that whole rise, but also just people being more aware of like, it's not just baseball players making tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, for every game, they're making your entire salary Um, to get there. They have to make $10,000 per year for a little while and then then work their way up. And and AJ, speaking to your experience and also just just your reporting on this. Uh, but your your experience, you know, covering covering a minor league team way back in the day, um, yeah. How do you see things sh- shifting? You know, if we can try to forecast because we can see the future here. Um, if we look in a few years ahead, um, yeah. What do you think minor leaguers are going to be fighting for? I think it's like you see this, and this is not just minor league baseball. It's is looking into just society as a whole. Um, uh, as we, as. Um, Amanda mentioned, like, intern, there's, there's kind of seem like as interns, it's like, and even interns are paid now. When I was, 
when uh, when I got to USA Today in 2006, there were all unpaid interns. Now they're paid. Um, and it's I was and, paid uh, you know, when we, I interned with AJ, yes, you, yes. by the way, which is That's where we met. Right. And she was the best. And yeah, she was the best intern. Yeah, I worked with her. So, uh, so that's, uh, so that it's, this is all changed. The whole paying your dues thing is changing, um, paying your dues where no matter what field it is and people, well, it's baseball seen as, as kind of like one of those you know, leisure kind of jobs where you're like, well, you shouldn't get paid. He's doing what he likes. I'm like, we all, it doesn't matter. You need to, you need to, be able to, to, to survive, to not live in your car, to not be eating fast food because you can't afford anything else. I, there's, you know, baseball has a lot of money and you know, they make a lot of money in, at the major league level and it should filter down. And, um, and I think this is a, this is a trend I've seen in beyond, beyond baseball in the last four or five years, even, even before COVID, you know, younger people realize that, you know, like my generation, just just kind of like, Oh, guess I'll just do the I mean, I could not afford to do an internship that was unpaid. I was coming from a middle-class family um, you know, with, uh, I didn't have any, st- I could have taken student loans out to an internship. I didn't want to do that. So that's why I, I worked for two smaller papers and I covered Cal League and Bakersfield for one of them. Um, that's where I met my wife. So it didn't end up being all bad. Uh, so that's, uh, um, you, so there's, uh, you know, I, th- I just like this change in society where we're not, you know, we're not looking, looking at young people saying, well, you got to pay your dues. I didn't make any money. You see this in, in, in the college loan debate too. Oh, I paid my college loans. I'm like, it doesn't just because you had to go through it doesn't mean you should make everybody, you know, suffer like you did. And that's kind of I I think this is uh, you know hopefully a societal trend that's kind of found major major league minor league baseball. And it's even harder for major league baseball to justify um, continuing to treat minor league players the way that they have because, by the way, there are fewer minor league teams than there ever have been. Uh, Major League Baseball cut off like what 40 teams last season so you know now there's more resources to go around right Um, it's a lot easier for the players to say okay well you you know you cut down on the number of teams so the the pool right is smaller Um, and and I I think that's I I wonder if that's going to be part of the negotiating tactic too Um, but you know I What I just don't understand is how you can expect, particularly in the sports world, how you can expect any athlete, whether it be a college basketball player or a minor league baseball player, to perform at their highest level, to rise through the ranks and to ultimately win a championship for your team, right, from your system, if you're not providing them with proper housing, proper nutrition, right? I mean, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's just counterintuitive. Why would you want your minor league players um, living, you know, on like not being able to like sleep in a bed, which, by the way, is some of their situations. Yeah. Yeah. And the expectations on these players, it seems like they're just getting higher and higher in terms of how they perform. And in baseball, you see pitcher velocities, just to take one example, are just going up and up and up because like if the next guy is throwing 98 and like, well, that's who you're competing against for the spot on the team. Uh, and AJ, absolutely, yeah. AJ, I'm glad you brought in the uh, the larger societal piece because it, it really struck me that the uh, the MLBPA joined the AFL CIO to say a bunch of letters uh, because it, I feel like just in the previous CBA negotiation, so um, not the la- most recent one before the season that caused the lockout, 
what was notable to me in that negotiation as opposed to previous ones was that the veteran players were really trying to stick up for the younger players saying, you know, we're doing okay, but these guys are way, way, way underpaid. Um, because, you know, I, I won't get into the whole system. I could go on and on about baseball contract structures. Anyway, and now joining the AFL-CIO, that's kind of, to me, saying the struggle of the baseball player, the, the you know, the baseball player stands with the American worker, not not just the younger American baseball player, but the, the worker in society as a whole. So I, I was just wondering if either of you had some thoughts on just what that move means. I mean, oh, I go to Matt, go for it. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that comes to mind for me is that um, the Major League Baseball Players Association in particular is um, in, in sort of the American labor space con considered to be one of the most powerful unions in the country. Um, and it has been for a long time. So, um, you know, regardless of its affiliation. So that I mean, that's just its reputation. So, it, you know, I mean, it, um, I think everyone stands to gain from um, this move. Yeah, and I think if they, I think the move is, it's uh, it's for for two reasons. I one reason is like we're more likely to know a former or current minor league player. I I know, uh, I know one of a, a family friend who blew out his arm twice. Had two had two Tommy Johns, um, and was supposed to have a third, and he was like, I'm done. Um, you know, so I you know you you see them go through that. Um, and uh, and then you also you need a, a nationwide infrastructure MLB. Yeah, the MLBPA is a big organization, but they're centralized. You need you need the assistance of a, a nationwide union. Not that they're going to be going into bargaining and fighting for you locally, but you need just the the footprint there to to lean on and to get you know to ask questions. It's not every single you know MLB uh, minor league baseball um, it, market is is the same. You know, some are you know some. Some do better than others, obviously, uh, you know, triple A, double A, single A and, and down, you know, so that and the pay scale changes and these use the bigger cities on triple A and it goes down to the smaller ones in single A. So it's you need that, you know, you need some more expertise than, than you really have in house currently with the MLBPA. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And yeah, the small town aspect of this, we maybe don't have time to get into all of that, but. It, the, these minor league teams learn, often play in small to mid-sized cities and they're not your Chicago's, New York's, LA's. So I feel like that's an interesting piece of this puzzle that we may see ripple effects of that, you know, a few years down the road. Let's broaden this out to other sports and specifically to the college world. And Amanda, we, we got some news just a day or two ago that the NBA is going to be lowering the eligibility age to 18. It was at 20, and now a few years ago, now it's going to come down to 18, most likely, uh, in the next CBA. So how do you see this interacting with college athletics? Uh, and we can start to get into NIL and uh, all the issues there. But yeah, let me just get your thoughts on, on that, sh that shift from the NBA. Yeah, so I think um, an important thing to remember about the shift is that it actually is a shift back. So um, before 2005, um, NBA players were allowed to go straight from high school to college. They were able to sort of make the jump at age 18. LeBron James did it. Kobe Bryant did it. Um, and then in 2005, that age was pushed back. Um, and that has created what we all are 
uh, what we all know as the one and done uh, phenomenon, right? Which is that players go to college for a year. A lot of times they go to Duke for a year. And then, um, you know, after their freshman season, they dip out. They, you know, they enter the draft, they get drafted and you know the rest of the story. Um, But in recent years, there has been um, there have been a number of conflicting pipelines that have, you know, I don't want to say weakened the sort of stranglehold that the NCAA has um, received with the one and done pipeline, but they've definitely sort of, I guess, changed some minds about whether or not that was necessary. Um, one of them was the creation of the NBA's G League Ignite. Um, it's a team where 18-year-olds can go after high school to play for the NBA, make money for a year, and then enter the draft. They can play overseas like Lamelo Ball did, um, or they could um, go, and you know, and then even earlier they can enter this league called Overtime Elite which is a league that allows for um, 16 to 18 year olds to play. Um, They don't have to receive salaries if they want to be NCAA eligible, but they can um, if they want to, and they can receive like six figures. So I think the NBA took a look at all of these sort of, you know, new pipelines and said, you know, what are we doing? Um, (laughs) What, like, what is the basis for, keeping players out of this league, there already are professional options for them. So we might as well just, you know, take back the power, make sure we don't, you know, um, make sure that these players are going to get the opportunity to develop relationships with NBA coaches at an earlier age, because that's what they're all looking to do anyway. So might as well. Yeah, and it just kind of seems like the story of a market where there was just one one company, one one person you want to work for, and that's the NBA, and now there's actually a, a few other options. And, and yeah, let's bring NIL into this. So name, image, and likeness for those unfamiliar. So um, that became, players became eligible, uh, or like they could legally uh, make money off their name, image, and likeness. As it, when was it, Amanda? Twenty twenty summer, or was it when the Supreme it Court was, decision came down? Um, yeah, so July first of twenty twenty one, which was last summer, um, was when the rule, the NCA officially um, changed or implemented this new rule. Um, I mean, NIL is interesting, sort of like to throw into the mix of this phenomenon because it's almost like a sort of counteractive. So. Um, you know, part of, on the one hand, it acknowledges that, um, athletes who are 18, 19 years old can be looked at as professionals in some fashion. They, they deserve to be paid for work. You know, NIL is third party endorsements. It's off field. They're getting, they're not getting paid salaries. They're getting paid for, you know, being on a Coke commercial or, um, making a social media post. Right. Um, but it serves as sort of a counteractive because I think the pitch that a lot of coaches are going to go to these top players with is, look, the experience of playing college basketball is unparalleled. So, you know, there's nothing that is going to replace that. So if you're the type of person who wants that experience for whatever reason, right, you will be able to make money while you're doing it. We're not going to pay you, right? But if you're a top 30 prospect, chances are there's going to be a line of companies down the block and around the corner waiting 
to sign deals for you. So you can do that while you're playing for Gonzaga, while you're playing for Duke, while you're playing for USC, UCLA, right? And you can make up to a million dollars maybe, who knows, right? The, the estimates are a little sketchy, but you can make a substantial amount of money by getting the college basketball experience and then you can get your salary in the NBA. Um, but, you know, again, I'm just not sure. The question then becomes, is the NIL money measuring up to what you can make in your contract? And then what if you get hurt? What if you play college basketball and you have, you know, potentially a career-ending injury and you never even get a first year of an NBA contract? So these are all issues that, you know, these really young kids are going to have to weigh going forward. Yeah. And if, uh, and if it's also, if, uh, you know, there, you can't, you, 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 you can buy insurance, you know, if you can afford it. Now, if you, now if you get into college um, and you're a, you know, top five prospect and you want to play one year, you know, you can't get insurance. It's not cheap. Uh, you have to come up with, come up with that money, um, but, it, but it still won't cover a lifetime of playing in the NBA. If you tear something, you're not the same after that. You know, that's not going to, that's, you're going to recoup, you know, maybe a year or two salary, maybe. Um, but it's, you, you're right. There, there's, it has to be a cost benefit analysis. And also do, you know, if you're, yeah, I didn't want to go to college. I'll admit that. I mean, I was like, after I was like, I just want to be a writer. I had, I mean, I had to go to college and I enjoyed my college time, but you know, do you, do these, if you're, if, if that, you know, do you want to study for a year? Do you want to, do you want to, do you, before that, do you want to have a high enough score in the SAT, high enough GPA? You know, if your life, if you decide to in your 13 and 14, and it, sometimes you'll, obviously there's a kid's going to get bad, bad advice at that age, AAU level and stuff. But, you know, if you're, if your life's dedicated to basketball, you may not see why taking an English one or two class is going to help with anything or, or a stats class or anything like that. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's going to be, while the college experience is great and, you know, you're going to be doing GE classes, which shouldn't be too difficult, you know. It's. Uh, I think it's. I think there's gonna be some. You know, some kids coming up or just like I'm just gonna go pro. Um, you know, it either if you know. Granted, they 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 have they they best have good advisors, good agents to let them know that you know it's a worthy, it's an attainable you know goal. Because I think you know that's you know if you remember back when you could you know, the NCAA allowed players to you know explore the draft with, as long as they didn't sign with an agent. So, um, but that was, you know, that was a big deal five, six, seven years ago when that happened, but, um, you know, it's longer than that now, but so, but I think, I think that, that, I think that's helped out too, where you, where these, uh, where these prospects will kind of at least, at least gauge where they're at before they have to commit to college or, or, or to the, or, or to the draft. Right. I did want to go to college because, uh, I wanted to learn. No, I wanted to be a kid for four more years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wonder how of, many you know... players will, will think about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if these players are, they can like go pro in some sense at, you know, 16, 17. Um, yeah. Which is, it's just a, a funny thing to think about. If you think about, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about going pro doing anything in particular when I was 16. I was ready to just kind of like, yeah, go to finish high school, go to college, figure it out at some point along the way. The social media aspect of this, I think is, it, it's hard to say, you know, everyone's on Instagram now. These guys have, you know, millions of Instagram followers and therefore this happened. But it does feel like an important influencing factor here because, you know, for a lot of these NIL deals, what the sponsors are paying for 
is your your Instagram following? Is your social media following? Because if you say like I endorse this hardware store or Coca Cola or Adidas, whatever it is, um, how many people is that going out to? How many people are you influencing? And I also think it's just a, a big part of um, of you know just the athletes can connect directly to their fans, and media sources can the the, the information flow is a lot quicker and stronger on both sides. So I think it helped in getting back to the minor leaguers. I, I think there was probably a lot of education that happened just naturally through through journalism and through other people saying like, actually, we don't have to accept these conditions. Uh, but also just, you are a lot more powerful if you have 20 million Instagram followers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so when you're when you when you uh, think about uh, that, it's uh, college athletes are the most protected. You know, when it when it comes to talking to media, as uh, Amanda knows this pretty well. <laughs> when you want to talk to a college athlete, you have to ask the SID, which is the PR person for the school. Sometimes the coach has to approve it, and you may talk to him once or twice a season, maybe outside of going me immediately after a game. That's the only exception. So uh, you don't really don't get to know you know these these uh, you know, these student athletes very well. You know, that's why I think this is while I can, I mean, you know, I think access for the pro sports needs to improve uh, to get back to where it was before COVID. Uh, and that goes the same for college uh, sports where we never really got great access to athletes. But we, we actually get to learn more from uh, about these players through their social fees. I think that's you know, I think that's a big positive. Absolutely. And I mean, this is a generation of athletes, which is part of just a generation as a whole that has never experienced a world where you are not marketing yourself to the public 24 seven. They are, you know, it, something that was funny to me about the beginning of NIL was all of these companies coming out and saying, we're going to teach athletes how to do brand building. Right. Because on the one hand, yeah, that every, you know, I would love to take a class on brand building, right? Like that makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, I think it was a bit paternalistic because um, there are so many athletes, these kids know how to market themselves. They know how to post on social media. They know what, you know, they know how to build a following. They know how to create a persona. They know how to, you know, speak a language of, you know, whatever it is they're trying to portray that they want to be known for. That's, that's built in for all of them. And so, um, they're uniquely positioned I think better than any other generation, not just to make money, but as AJ was saying, to say we're the generation that's not going to stand for this. We're the generation that's going to ask for more than the previous ones. Because um, 20 years ago, how if a minor league baseball player even wanted to talk about how bad the conditions are, how would they do that? If the major media outlets weren't going to do a story on it, what, what were they going to do? Send out a, a you know like carrier pigeon, you know, I mean, come on, like now they can just post on Instagram, but before they had mm -hmm. no platform for that. Um, yeah. And getting back to the, um, it, these schools saying like, we're, we're going to help build your brand. I'm sure you're going to see athletes, you know, looking at schools, seeing like, who's actually good at that. The same way they look at say, who, who's going to make me the best quarterback. Who's going to make me the best point guard. Um, Cause if I wanted to build my, my social media brand, I'm not necessarily going to say like, okay, you know, who's going to help me with that? The university of Nebraska, like maybe they can do it or, or maybe they're just as clueless as everyone else. Actually, they're like pretty good at it. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's uh, so interesting you mentioned that because um, that's part of the recruiting pitch for, for everybody now is this is what um, athletic department officials have told me is like athletes are coming to us on recruiting visits and asking about NIL. And but a year in what everybody is realizing is that what the athletes want isn't sort of like necessarily like a brand coach or, you know, a seminar on how to, you know, build your following and tell your story. They want much more basic information. They want to know how they can connect with brands. They want to know how to evaluate an agent if they want to sign with an agent. They want to know where the hell they can find a lawyer to look over their contracts and how to evaluate said lawyer, right? They just want basic business entrepreneurial resources. And so I think everyone got a little too high level with their NIL programs, but what the athletes told me they really want is just those basic things. And the schools that can deliver them are the ones that are gonna be successful. Last thing I wanna touch on here, but before we call it a day, it feels like, so NIL happened, you know, through the legal system and then through the NCAA, but very quickly it felt like this is more than just, now you can sell your name, image, and likeness. It feels like college athletes are going to start getting paid directly you know, probably this decade. So why, why do you think this, why do you think NIL is more than NIL? I think NIL is more than NIL because it's proven that there's a market to pay players. Um, there are boosters that want to pay players. There are fans that want to pay players. I'd even argue that there are schools that want to pay players. Um, there's certainly enough money to go around. Uh, just ask the big 10 and their mid seven uh, point, you know, mid seven billion dollar media deal that um, is going to go into effect um, soon. So um, sort of everyone is like the boundaries that have been set about you can't pay players for their athletic performance. Like everyone's kind of like chafing against those boundaries because every, you know, there's enough money and there are people who want to pay whether they be inside the athletic department or outside of it. Um, and that is a wave that I don't think anyone can stop at this point. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's right. It's, it, the, you're, when you start paying directly uh, outside of NIL, which could happen, it's, you do run into the workers' compensation issue, and every state has different kind of rules for that. You know, when a player gets hurt, you know, do you, what, what happens to the earning potential that, you know, especially if they were going pro, like you mentioned earlier, then if they don't have an insurance policy, there's certain things where you have to, you know, you know, work, consider and uh, workers comp, you know, but the, that's going to be a major issue. And that's one of the reasons, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons that the NCAA has kind of resisted it, it resisted it, um, the whole pain of the players was because, you know, you got, you, you, you do run up against, you know, these regulations. Yeah. Hey, so we're going to wrap it there. Thank you both so much for, for joining me for this conversation. I feel like I, I wanted to bring you both in because this is one of those things where if you just look at one piece, like the NBA lowering their eligibility age, minor leagues are getting unionized, NIL, it, each of these look like individual stories. But taken as a whole, I feel like this is one of the big seismic shifts. It's happening slowly in different sports at different times at different rates. But you put it all together and, and there is a picture there. And, and it speaks to yeah the power of social media to just unionizing efforts, to organizing efforts, and to these other shifts of people saying, you know, just because the last generation dealt with all this doesn't mean we have to, because these leagues have so much money and we can have just our, our one little piece of it. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Newsroom. Please rate us, review us, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can check us out on YouTube. We're going to be diving into not just sports, but where sports is touching business, is shaping the culture. We're going to be doing that every week with our all-star lineup of writers and editors here at Front Office Sports. So please check us out every Thursday here at The Newsroom.